My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and as you well know, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. Now, today I am joined by, I think, somebody who is more of a FOMO Sapiens than me, potentially. She has the FOMO. She does a million things very successfully. It all comes together in a very elegant way. But explaining it, well, it takes a little time. And so that's what we're going to do on the show today. Now, my guest is Melinda Ahrens. We're going to be talking about how to use media to change minds. Now, Melinda is the founder of Ahrens Advisors, a boutique consulting firm at the intersection of media and social change. She is the former senior vice president of social impact at Participant Media, where she oversaw campaigns aligned with the company's films, including RBG, Roma, Judas, and the Black Messiah, Just Mercy, and many others. Now, she started her career at Fox News and then spent 12 years at ABC News as a producer for Good Morning America and Nightline, and ultimately became the chief political producer and senior producer. She has also had senior roles at Facebook and the Hillary for America presidential campaign. Now... The reason why I invited Melinda, though, that's all very good, was because she was part of the team that produced the January 6th hearings. I kept hearing about this senior person from ABC who was making all those video montages and all that stuff for the J6 hearings, which I watched some of them. And then I discovered it was her one day and it kind of blew my mind. So being able to talk to somebody who has crafted a narrative, a convincing narrative, well, depending on what you believe, but taking this crazy amount of information and distilling it down into a message. To me, that is fascinating. And listen, this is a political episode. Melinda is very involved in politics. So we do talk about politics, but I'm not trying to be partisan here. What I want to do is just understand how somebody uses media to tell a story and change minds. And that is exactly the business that Melinda's always been in. So she's a really fascinating guest. And what's great is you will hear next Monday on Full Mondays. We did a little bit of FOMO therapy. So I saved that up for Monday because, you know, we get into FOMO. We get into it deep. And Melinda is a great person to talk about what drives her FOMO and how she deals with it. Now, this week, my little small ask is very basic talking about communications and media, go check out the FOMA campaign, Mercado Ads, part of Mercado Libre. I am very thankful to be the face of that campaign. We have invented this word FOMA, fear of missing audience together and launched it into the world. You can find that commercial on my LinkedIn, on my Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis. The LinkedIn, by the way, is Patrick-McGinnis. You can find it on Mercado Ads site, ads.mercadolibre.com.ar. All over the place. Go check it out. I would love your feedback and thoughts. All right, and now onto the episode. As you know, I start every episode with the same question, so I started by asking Melinda this. What's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? I don't know if I'm just saying this because we know each other from college, but I think going to Georgetown was a pretty formative decision, both from a positive and negative perspective, mainly positive. But, you know, when I think about every job I've ever had, you know, technically it could probably be traced back to the network I formed 
at Georgetown and then certainly from a friendship, you know, network perspective, which, you know, I'm very reliant and um, grateful for my friend group. And while uh, friends from college are probably, you know, they're not the only uh, major friendship network I have, they're a a significant one. Um, So, yeah. If you consider being on FOMO Sapiens one of your jobs, yeah, that, <laughs> that fits. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so the reason I wanted to have you on, it well, we've been talking about this for a while, but mm-hmm. you're one of these people who you're a complete FOMO Sapiens. You, you, you have a really unique path. There's a through line, so it's not random per se. But yeah. you've done a lot of different things. Yeah. And we'll get into some of that stuff. But like, just to get started, like, just describe, like, what, how would you describe your your you know your, yourself? Professionally or overall? Uh, we'll start with professional. You can throw in some some personal stuff. Um, I mean, I just heard somebody introduce themselves at a cocktail party as a hybrid. So mm. I've decided I'm adopting. I'm a hybrid. Um, I guess I would say, you know, I'm a consultant. And so I, I consult on media strategy. And that sort of spans multiple different areas. Um, a lot of sort of strategic communications, uh, political strategic comms. Um, but I, I, I like to think of myself as sort of an, an expert on like narrative change. And then everything sort of falls under that. So there's either strategic communications that, that you know, you need to have a narrative shift in a political debate, on an issue, um, you know, on a, an idea um, that is in service of uh, you know, social change, like, okay, well, if we're going to combat climate change, we have to shift how we think about this. And then I'll, you know, that's like kind of something I work on with a couple of clients. Um, and then, you know, I still do some producing, which I guess we'll get into later, but that was my background was, you know, for 12 years, I was at ABC news and I was chief political producer at nightline and, and covered like every kind of story. And so, um, uh, I feel like I'm not really explaining myself well, and, this is and, what happens to the FOMO savings, but you tough. did say because you said narrative change. Yeah, that's. I think that that's that's. I right. guess I guess my overarching thing would be when you say like I've done a lot of random things, but there's a through line. I do think that's true, and I think the through line, in retrospect, when I piece everything together, is leveraging different forms of media to further positive social change. And sometimes that is on an issue. Sometimes that's political, um, and you know sometimes it's through film. Uh, and television, but it's all different forms of media in service of, you know, ideally like trying to make the world a better place. Yeah. To change people's minds. Yeah. And, and, and you, you, this is like one of, this was a moment that I was like, I, I, I was just kind of blew my mind was I was, I like Instagram. So I'm scrolling Instagram and I follow you and I had heard for the January 6th committee hearings, I had read in the press somewhere that all the, the film montages that were very affecting and well done, and I watched a bunch of those hearings, I had heard that they were produced by a former TV news producer. And I just remember being like, whoever did that did a great job, and you know, America should say thank you. And maybe some folks that are listening didn't watch, but like they were, they were very well done and, and moving and effective. Um, and... One day I'm scrolling through Instagram and I'm like, it turns out you were the person who did this. And so it blew my mind. Like literally my head fell off of my shoulders. I had to put it back on. (laughs) But you know that. that, So let's talk about that. Let's start there because that that is kind of like a that's going to be in, you know, not to be morbid, but it's going to be in the obit. It might be the the lead on the obit. 
um, which is going to be a long time for now. But talk about talk how about that it. happened. Yeah. So um, my former boss uh, at ABC News is a guy named James Goldston. Mm-hmm. He um, started at ABC. Gosh, I mean, he was my boss when I was like. 27 or something. Mm-hmm. So long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't say how long, but pretty long. And then he ultimately became president of ABC News. And he and I were always um, close collaborators. And, you know, I worked for him for many, many years. He was my boss for many years at ABC. I then left ABC a decade ago. Um, he left a little less than two years ago. And he and I had always stayed in touch. We were still in touch talking about some projects together in the sort of docu-series space. Um, and then it was literally exactly a year ago. It was, it was just a couple weeks before Memorial Day. Um, I get this call from him. He's like, I'm at Union Station. I just came out of the most surreal meeting of my life. I was in Liz Cheney's office for two hours. They want me to produce the January 6th committee hearings. Do you want to do it? And I was like, one, yes, that sounds incredible. And two, like, what does that mean? And he was like, we have no idea. Just like, when can you be here? So it started with uh, myself, James, and an incredible colleague uh, named Mary Marsh. I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning her by name, who um, is also former ABC News and lives in D.C., Um, And then there were other producers, uh, two others. One I'm also going to name, I hope he doesn't mind, named Steve Baker, uh, also incredible former (laughs) Nightline. If you're going to sue somebody, Steve and Mary, you can sue Melinda, (laughs) not Patrick. (laughs) Um, And uh, and so ultimately it ended up being this sort of like, like weird little team of like former producer Avengers who, you know, were called by our leader (laughs) to come to D.C. and do this. And, you know, at the time it was completely secret. Um, and you know, we weren't able to tell anybody and we, you know, I could talk forever about how it all came together, but, um, but that was, that was how it happened. And, you know, it was a really out of nowhere left field thing. I mean, nobody had ever done it before or since had sort of, you know, former news producers (laughs) creating, um, you know, hearings to be broadcast live in prime time. And I'm very, very glad that they, called James and I'm super glad he called me because it was, you know, very, it was probably, it was the hardest thing I've ever done by a mile, but it was also like by far the most gratifying and rewarding thing I've ever done. You know, so when, when you think about the challenge there, mm-hmm. I don't have to tell you, you're trying to establish truth in a, in a quote, you know, I hate yep. this term, a post truth world, whatever yep. you have a lot. I mean, people who clearly you, you can look at the footage and we've seen this in our politics. Like yep. some people are like that person's a freedom fighter. Other person's like yep. that person's a criminal, blah, 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 blah. So what did you learn? I mean, it's like, that's such a responsibility. What did you learn in that process? I learned so much. Mm. Gosh, that's a very hard question to answer because I also learned a lot personally, um, you know, about the way I work and high pressure situations. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. I guess I would say from a from a, you know, national political perspective, I think something we have to remember is for, you know, for better or worse, obviously, I guess I would say for worse, but you kind of can't get away from it. We are in a place in our politics where it is really about 10,000 people in six states. Mm -hmm. And we saw this in the midterms. Obviously, abortion was a huge driving issue, but I would like to think that the hearings did an incredibly effective job of communicating to independents, um, the people who you can convince and need to be convinced um, that this person is a huge threat to democracy. You know, we were talking about narrative change and how do you shift people's hearts and minds even when it's incredibly difficult to do. And uh, I was listening to the Daily podcast on the uh, the New York Times podcast right after the last hearing. And I think it was Luke Broadwater, who's uh, the congressional correspondent for the Times, who was sitting in on all of the hearings every day, was the interview. And he was saying how when these hearings began, most Americans thought of January 6th as an isolated day of violence. And that what the hearings did was shift that narrative to people understanding it was several months of uh, plotting and planning uh, at the highest levels of government, um, really led by the president. And, you know, I haven't seen a poll to back that up, but if that's true, it's like our work here is done because that was the shift that needed to happen. And so I think what's really, really difficult and challenging, um, and again, I suffer from this too, is when you see this sort of post-truth world, you see the completely, you know, siloed media ecosystems that people are getting their information from that's just getting worse and worse. You know, you have to remember that there, there are thousands of people out there that are not following these things at the level we are, and it you can make a difference, it does make a difference, and that those are the people that need convincing. I am not, 
I do not think that there is a world in which the most diehard Trump supporter watches the hearings and comes away with a wildly new perspective. I would love that, but that might not be the case. Um, what is really important is getting you know those folks in the middle, and they are there, and they do need to be. Um, I don't want to say radicalized, but you know, there is a democracy voter that is emerging right now as a result of the last few years, and those people need to be spoken to. And so, to the degree that the hearings did that, I would, I, I feel very good about that. And then, you know, history will judge whether, who knows, if he'll get charged. You know, we don't know what's going to happen, but. Um, and then I, I would just like to say one other thing, which is it ended up being that they were so effective and well-received, and that was just incredible and, and so gratifying. But at the beginning, when people, a lot of people were poo-pooing them, you know, David Brooks wrote this column the I day remember they that started. Column. Yeah, uh, he hated print, on that. We printed that column out and put it on the wall, and we were like, Dartboard. really? Um, <laughs> It was our inspir- It was one of our many inspirations. But um, you know, e- even when you were, people were sort of saying this is not going to make a difference in the beginning, uh, it almost doesn't matter. Like you cannot have an attack on the U.S. Capitol and not have a congressional investigation. Like it, we don't have a country if you don't do that. Like, it's like saying, "Well, you're sorry. We're the police, and your child is dead, but we're not going to investigate it. And we're not going to tell you what we find because it's not going to bring your kid back." It's like what? No, you you have to. That's that's the you have to investigate these things. You have to. So even if it's just for the historical record to look back 50, 100 years from now, it was worth doing. It happens to be that the investigators were incredible and they got the goods and that hopefully we were able to help share those goods with the public in a meaningful way. It reminds me what you say. I mean, it's interesting. The point about the fact that the story that was told, it was just, it wasn't just a day, but it was, there was a lot leading up to, you're right. Cause I think even though I was following the whole thing, I was like, okay, now I, I get the, the through line on that. And then you, th- and it's funny, I had this conversation the other day, like, it seems like generative AI, our mm-hmm. favorite topic here on FOMO Sapiens just came out of nowhere. Yeah. But if you think about it, this has been going on for years. There's so many things that pop up, but there's like anything else in life. It's like when the, 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 the by the time you realize it, it's happening, it's probably already been happening Mm. for a long time now you're in the business of getting people to wake up and so you know you 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 worked at participant participant Mm -hmm. media where the same kind of skills you drew on uh in your work in january six hearings you use for using media and what i what i want to get into that is for those who are listening you know we have a lot of people on this uh that listen to the show who are entrepreneurs or they're building things Mm -hmm. or they're trying to convince people to change behavior and that's like the hardest thing to do is get people to change the way they do things. And that's what the, that's kind of the business you're in. So talk about, you know, what the, the work of participant was and sort of what, what you were trying to do there. Yeah. Um, participant was founded by Jeff Skoll, who was uh, the first president of eBay. And when eBay was sold and he became a billionaire, he became a major philanthropist. He has the Skoll Foundation, which is an incredible, more traditional grant making foundation, um, he has an impact investment firm, um, and then he started Participant. Uh, and the first film, so Participant is a film studio um, that funds and distributes films and TV. And their first film was Inconvenient Truth, and and then there was a whole series of films. You know, I joke, I started there in 2017, and um, it was the year they had Roma, RBG, um, and there were multiple Oscar nominees and, and ultimately winners that year. And um, I like to joke that, you know, it was the year I, 
I joined. But um, but no, they they do. You know, they it's a it's the whole model of the company is we're not just going to fund these films um, and help develop them. We are also going to put money aside to run social impact campaigns uh, that are aligned with the content. So that was my role. So I just want to be totally clear because I don't ever want to take... You are not in the film, Roma. I don't ever want to take credit, uh, you know, um, for for something I had nothing to do with. And so the, the actual development of those films, I was sort of adjacent to, but not, you know, on that team. I was on the impact team. And so I uh, oversaw the impact campaigns and happy to talk about, you know, like what the hell is a film impact campaign? Um I mean, should I explain what that yeah. is? Because a lot of people don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you should. Yeah, so essentially, you know, again, back to sort of leveraging all different forms of media, when a film comes out, there's a lot that goes into it, right? There's ideally, if you're lucky, a huge marketing campaign. Um, there's a lot of awareness. So when you see a billboard on Sunset or you see ads on the subway or on you know TV or whatever, you know, that's all part of a huge marketing campaign, getting people excited to see the film. Um, and so the idea is basically how do you leverage, uh, you know, the kind of unique nature of a film to change hearts and minds. And what that ends up meaning is you usually work really closely with the filmmakers, any kind of studio partners, marketing uh, folks on uh, on the studio side to figure out sort of, you know, who holds, uh, my boss used to say, who holds the why? You know, why did why did I want to make this movie? Um, what do I want to see come out of it? If you're making a movie with participant, like you have a why, right? You're not making some right. These are films with sequel. a purpose. Yeah, these are films with a purpose. Yeah. So um, you sort of figure out what's you know what the what the why is, um, and then you know our part is really it's really strategic partnerships. It's like who are the right organizations who will take this film and you know just embrace it, and that can take multiple forms. So it can be plugging into a political campaign, trying to get a piece of legislation passed. It can be much more broad, again, from like a narrative perspective. So for example, with Roma, it was the first ever film that had a lead character who was an indigenous Mexican woman who was um, a domestic worker. Mm -hmm. So that was a really unique opportunity. It has, you know, the challenge of having been a narrative feature film, but um, that was a really huge moment. It had a huge, you know, it won all of these Oscars. Alfonso Cuaron, the director, was... Um, incredibly into the idea of doing social impact around it. And very long story short, um, partnered with uh, iGen Poo and the uh, National Domestic Workers Alliance to try and push forward various um, initiatives. Some of that was at a very high level, like just getting people to see domestic workers differently. And then some was very specific, like how do we plug this campaign into getting a National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights? Um, and so again, it can take all different kinds of forms, but it is really, really interesting. And films are so unique. I mean, there are not a lot of mediums where you watch something and you leave and you're like a changed person. And, you know, movies can do that. And so the idea is if you have a film that people are going to see and they're going to be activated to do something, like what's the something you're asking them to do? And how do you make sure that you've got partners on the front lines of that issue who are ready to embrace the film and take it out to their audiences. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, it's, it's Roma's a film that I, I watch. It took me, I maybe I had stopped it like five times because it's like, it's like cheese. You can only have a little bit at a time, but then, so I was like, is it kind of a little bit like, am I bored here? But then I cried at the end. So clearly it got to me. FOMO. FOMO. 
Now, I, what I'm hearing, though, as we think about kind of what the big picture takeaway here, what I want to focus on with you is you're in the business of getting people to change their thinking and getting people to care about something, whether it's the person watching in the movie theater or it's the reporter at the New York Times. And that is like, you know, attention is such a, 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 a treasure these days. Cause we, I mean, I have no attention, right? So <laughs> talk about like how one does that. Oh God, that is so tough. Honestly, I think it, I, it's a great question. I think from a media perspective, I really try, I'm very intentional with clients. I really only want to take on projects where I, as a journalist, would want to be educated on this topic and would want to write the story or tell the story. I try to do that. Sometimes I like, you know, I, I fall down, but generally speaking, I don't consider myself a sort of typical media relations person and that I really only want to pitch something that I would want to do myself as a journalist. So I try and sort of look at it, uh, from that perspective and working backwards. Um, so how do you get somebody to care? I mean, that is really, that is a very tough question. I, it's sort of like, you know, when you see it, but I, I think that there's a mixture of both. There are certain things that are just great stories that haven't been told. I mean, there's so many great stories that haven't been told. That's why we have, that's, that's why we have Hollywood. That's why we have media. You know, people are hungry for storytelling. So sometimes you just hear a story that's like, wow, that's an incredible project. I think the thing that I, I don't know if it was my training or it's just something like organic, but James Goldston, who is the same guy who, uh, you know, brought me in on the hearings and, you know, is an unbelievable storyteller and all kinds of medium. He once said as an executive producer, he, when he was my boss at Nightline, you know, he would get very frustrated when producers would come in all hot and bothered and say, we've got to cover this, you know, we've got to cover child soldiers in the Congo, you know, just a topic. And he would say, you know, that's a topic, that's not a story. And so when you're at that level at an ABC News or a New York Times or, you know, these media organizations, one of the best parts of your training is just knowing inherently what's a topic versus what's a story. And I think one of the big challenges with how do you know a good story or how do you convince people of something, how do you get people to care, it's really just like, wow, there's this amazing character that can help open up the world of the story and helping people identify what that is. And then, you know, obviously you have to be connected to the right people who are going to care about what you want them to care about. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes you throw stuff out or it takes a really long time. But um, that's that's sort of a very vague way of putting it. I'm not being specific. I don't think that's vague that at all, sense? actually, because yeah. anybody who's listening to this, who say you have a new toothbrush, okay, like you're doing the Quip competitor, which I don't recommend you doing, right? <laughs> it's just like, we didn't even need Quip. But anyway, it's it's like, you're trying to market that. You're trying to, and I like, I, I have a podcast. How many publicists reach out to me a week with their pitch? And they're, and I, and they're not, and not that these people aren't good at their jobs or whatever, but like, yeah. there's so much volume out there. And it's like the ones that get the breakthrough, they're so thoughtful. And so if you have, it, you're right, like it's national 
you know, blank awareness month, like, yay, that doesn't do anything for me. If you bring me a person, a character, somebody who moves my heart, I will cover the person. I will cover the story. I won't cover the topic. So I actually think that's a super valuable insight that I don't think a lot of people talk about. Yeah. And I, I, it is really fascinating that a lot of people don't get that. It's like, well, why aren't they covering this? And it's like, cause they have a job to do. That's really hard. And they have metrics, which is the number of people watching their show or reading their piece. And, you know, it's like people in the media are not there for their health, you know, their health. They're there to tell great stories. So if you want them to tell a great story, you got to help them find the great story. They're not just going to cover it because you asked them to, and they shouldn't, you know? And I think, I mean, going back to the hearings, you know, look, part of that was just, as I said, you know, we take no credit whatsoever for what the incredible investigators and congressional staff did. I mean, these investigators are just, there should be a show about them. They're, they, these guys came from, and you know, men and women who came from all over, private sector, former a- AUSAs, district attorneys, uh, lawyers at firms. Many of them left their families, you know, to do something that they thought was going to be three or four months. It ended up being a full year, um, you know, working around the clock. And, you know, so what I'm what I'm trying to get at is when I say they got the goods, they got the goods from a an investigative um, legal perspective, but they also got the goods from a storytelling perspective. And these characters that emerged that we never could have like imagined would have emerged in the way that they did. Um, but but I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is is even back to the hearings, uh, you know, it really was about those characters. Some of them were crazy. Some of them were just so unbelievably um, patriotic and compelling, like the women in Georgia, the election workers, um, uh, Shay and Ruby, who, you know, Giuliani went after, Trump went after, they you know, were chased from their homes. It just, you know, they, do you remember this, the part of the yeah, story in the state course. pressure? It's actually coming up again now with the, with these yeah, Georgia stories. Like story. I mean, that's the thing about it. It's not just facts. It's a story. Yeah. It's, it's human beings. And, and it's the, the, uh, yeah, the human story of what Trump and his people did. Melinda, uh, it's been really interesting. I really appreciate your insights on kind of getting people, I guess, changing hearts and minds and how to tell those stories. And this is applicable to everything, folks. So think about what we talked about today and, you know, use it in your work. Uh, if you want to find out more about Melinda, Melinda is not, it's interesting for such a, a FOMO sapien, she's pretty low key on the socials, but you can find her on LinkedIn. And if you want to work with her, you know, maybe you have a project that makes sense. Uh, the name of her organization is the Aaron's Group, A-R-O-N-S. Actually, Aaron's Advisors. Aaron's Advisors. Yeah. See, I'm terrible. I'm, I am clearly not good at changing hearts in mind. Aaron's Advisors. So go check that out. All right, Melinda Aaron's, founder of Aaron's Advisors. And, you know, FOMO sapiens, thanks for being here. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.